Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? My guest today is Liam Hildebrand, the founder and executive director of Iron and Earth, a not-for-profit NGO led by Alberta oil sands workers committed to retraining oil industry workers for new jobs in the rapidly emerging renewable energy industry and to engaging in and advocating for renewable energy development to create an energy future they can be proud of. Liam led the creation of Iron and Earth during the spring of 2015 when world oil prices had started to fall. Oil sands workers were losing their jobs, and the need to diversify Alberta's energy grid was on everyone's mind. As Liam notes, we founded Iron and Earth as a platform to engage in renewable energy development issues and to empower us to advocate for an energy future we can be proud of creating. Since its inception, membership has grown to include workers from a variety of industrial trades, including boilermakers, electricians, pipe fitters, iron workers, and general laborers. Liam's leadership of Iron and Earth is built on a solid foundation. After training as a metal worker and welder, and then getting a BA in Geography at Commissant College, and a master's degree in Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University, Liam started out his boilermaker career in Victoria, BC, building pressure vessels for the oil sands, as well as infrastructure for renewable energy projects. He realized that his trade skills could be used to build renewable energy infrastructure, and this ultimately led to the idea of founding Iron and Earth. Over the past five years, Liam has worked at a number of different oil sands projects, and this experience is what grounds his leadership at Iron and Earth, a dedication to his fellow workers and a commitment to creating a better planet for future generations. In our conversation, Liam talks about his inspiration and reasons for founding Iron and Earth the huge opportunities to transform the dying fossil fuel industry workforce into a renewable energy workforce, the opportunities and challenges for developing policy to drive large-scale social change, and about the prosperous transition plan that Iron and Earth is now rolling out, a pragmatic plan for transforming Canada's workforce, businesses, infrastructure, and environment to meet the demands of a future net-zero carbon economy. We also talked about what gives Liam hope and keeps them going when things look dark, and the advice he would offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And if you do enjoy this podcast, please consider sponsoring us by using our Patreon link that you will find on our podcast homepage or at bit.ly forward slash T-F-C-I-P-A-T-R-E-O-N. This is a not-for-profit podcast, and all of our sponsorship goes to covering our production costs. So if you like what you're hearing, please become a patron. Welcome to the podcast, Liam. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Craig. 
In the introduction to this episode, I provided our listeners with a brief biography of your career to date. Clearly, you're passionate about sustainability and the health of the environment. So why don't we start off by talking about when your interest in sustainability first emerged and how it grew to become such an important part of your career? Yeah, so my journey really started right from when I was quite young, growing up on a 10-acre farm. I spent most of my days just running around in the woods and building tree forts and getting into all sorts of trouble. And I really just became sort of part of my environment from a pretty young age. And then when I was 13, my family actually sold that little mini farm and we moved to the South Pacific to a country called Vanuatu for about a year. Wow. And it's an island nation. We lived on one of the small islands. My, my dad was the volunteer doctor. And I was just set free to meet all the locals. And we ended up having some of the most incredible times of my whole life in, in Vanuatu. It was a self-sufficient place, so they only got one shipment of food every three months. And other than that, they lived completely off the land using traditional practices. And so my friends and I, that I made really quickly there, we would sort of go to the village in the morning and grab our machetes and our bows and arrows, and then we would just spend all day running around in the jungle foraging for food. This sounds wonderful. What, what an amazing experience. Oh, absolutely incredible. Have you been back since? I went back once shortly after because my mom and I, we missed it so much. We, we just had to go back right away. Yeah. Uh, but I hope to go back again soon. I think about it on a weekly basis, at least. Do you keep in touch with any of the people that you met there and made friends with? Yeah, definitely. They all have Facebook now, <laughs> which is kind of incredible. <laughs> but like, it's amazing how many people around the world have cell phones. And yeah, so I, I keep in touch with some of them through Facebook. And they're really proud of how I've sort of taken that experience and applied it to starting a nonprofit organization that's really fighting for a sustainable future. And the, my vision of a sustainable future was partly born through that experience of being able to live off the land alongside my friends and also spending a lot of time with the elders in the community. So when I, when I left Vanuatu, I was actually given a traditional name, now Kaut, which means great warrior and leader. And so I've always been trying to live up to that. Uh, That's a tough moniker to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure, hey? Yeah. Well, well speaking about being a, a leader, you're the executive director of Iron and Earth. What are the most important lessons you've learned from your work in that role as executive director in how to come to grips with the key challenges uh, related to climate change and how to limit it and how to adapt to it? Yeah, I think, I think my biggest lesson in my role actually came really on day one during the formation of the whole idea of Iron and Earth. That was when I was actually in the lunchroom, in the oil sands, 
having conversations with my fellow coworkers about climate change and about these new renewable energy technologies and coming to the realization pretty quickly that they were all on board or maybe not all, but the majority of the people that I was having conversations with up there were on board. And that was a real big awakening moment for me, just realizing that the majority of fossil fuel industry workers actually really wanted to build a better future with their skills. And above and beyond that, they were actually way more informed about these issues than the average Canadian. Wow. How long ago was that, Liam? That was uh, a few years ago now. So we, we launched Iron and Earth just over four years ago. And that sort of epiphany moment was shortly before that. Well, it, it's interesting because I guess around last year, I saw an article about Iron and Earth and yourself. And I thought, wow, this is so important because it was just at the time that although Alberta oil sands and the whole economy for fossil fuels was just dive bombing or crashing out. And I thought, what are all these people going to do? Like, this is really uh, scary. Not, Of course, it's always been an issue from an environmental climate change point of view, but it's also a all these people's lives. So when I saw what you guys were doing, I thought, this is wonderful. This is like transition plan that's emerging at the perfect time. Did you have a sense then? Was it just two, four years ago? So that was, the boom was still happening, or at least it, the prices were still up, weren't they? So the prices started to crash in 2015. And it was uh, on a job, I was on a job at Nexon Long Lake for about three months, we were doing a, a maintenance turnaround. So they're also called sort of shutdowns commonly. And so we were out there during the oil price crash and it was terrifying. Like we're all reading the news every day and it's another thousand layoffs at whatever company. Right. And we're just sort of waiting to hear, okay, well, what project isn't going to get canceled? Right, All these new right. construction projects are getting canceled. So where's our work actually going to come from? What we realized is that on the other side of the picture, the renewable energy industry growth was like a hockey stick curve. And so you have these intersection points and we sort of looked forward a few years and said, hey, well, okay, maybe those jobs aren't here right now in Canada to sort of catch us during this period, but this isn't the only boom and bust cycle that we've experienced or will experience in the future. So we need to actually get out there and start being more proactive about uh, diversifying our work scope. And that was really the, the key word actually early on was diversification. And that's still a very important term for us because it's not about necessarily transitioning from one career to another, but helping workers diversify into new opportunities. How they can apply their skills in another area. Exactly. 
we talked in the introduction a bit about iron and earth and your role in it, but maybe you could tell listeners a bit about what iron and earth does and how it works and how it's sort of playing in the industry right now. Yeah, absolutely. So iron and earth is a worker led, not for profit that helps to empower fossil fuel industry and indigenous workers to build and implement climate solutions. We do that in a few key ways. One is that we have chapters across Canada. We launched and pretty early on had an East Coast chapter where a group of workers were really excited about our vision and wanted to help create some local projects and local programs. So we established a chapter model pretty, pretty early on. And we also do campaigns. So we identify important policy issues and push for policy solutions that we believe in. And then we do training programs. So right now we have three training programs that we're going to begin offering shortly. We've done a few training programs already. Those are mainly contracted out. But now we actually have built our own in-house training programs and will become a, a real training institution starting in spring of next year will be the first delivery of those programs. So that's in solar and wind right now, but we'll, we'll be expanding into other different types of energy technologies. We also do hands-on projects. So we do project development as well as hands-on projects that are integrated into our training programs. So we've We've done some with the Louis Bull tribe and uh, have, have some big projects coming up. It sounds like it'd be a really good thing for us to, in the show notes that we do with each podcast, provide people with contact information about how they in their particular area might get in touch with one of your chapters. And if they don't have a chapter, found one or something, would that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We're still working out the kinks of our chapter model. But we're always looking for, for people that are interested in starting chapters in their area. And probably info at Iron and Earth is, is the best place to sort of reach out. Okay, we'll make sure that's in the, in the show notes. You, you mentioned policies, promising policies. What do you think are the most promising policies, strategies, and technologies for helping us reduce environmental harm and helping us repair the damage we've already caused? I... I think the most promising approaches are always going to build on what we already have. So if you look at Iceland, they were very successful in utilizing their geothermal resources. 66% of their energy comes from the incredible geothermal resources that they have. Now, that's Definitely not an option for most countries. I was actually just in South Africa. We had a very exciting opportunity to speak at Africa Oil Week in Cape Town, South Africa, to speak about some of the training programs we've been developing and some of the work that we've been doing. And while I was down there, there was one of the largest electricity crises that uh, they've ever had. And most of their power comes from coal and they're having all kinds of trouble with their coal-fired power plants, but they actually have an incredible wind resource 
it's one of the most popular places in the world for kiteboarding because it's such consistent wind. So there's a good example of a country that can leverage those resources. Connect with Denmark and get some uh, wind tower uh, technology. Yeah, exactly. I think when we're looking at Canada, we're obviously a country that has quite abundant and a wide range of resources. But I think what we need to focus on really is the human resource and the institutional resources that we have, which is really an incredible expertise in industrial scale projects. And we can now leverage that resource through smart policy to build upon the legacy that we've created and create a new future for ourselves using those resources. Liam, what do you think is the best way to drive large-scale change and large-scale action? I mean, all these policies need to be put into effect. Uh, the kind of change needed to move us in the right direction, solving these huge challenges. I think we really need action at the political level. It's pretty exciting to see some of what's happening around the world right now, where you have the European Union just committed some, I think it's 600 some billion dollars towards a green recovery. So we need all countries to follow suit and implement their own green recovery packages and stimulus programs so that we can really take this leapfrog that's been a long time coming to step ambitiously into the path that we've needed to be going for quite some time now. If you're looking at the Canadian scope of that, I think the best way to leverage the change is to build the public support. And that is really gonna come from having workers being the forefront of that collective voice. Generalizing from your own experience, what do you think are the biggest challenges and barriers to coming to grips with how we meet these realities and how we actually change? I think one of the big challenges comes from the, I mean, it's incredibly difficult to imagine ourselves in a future that hasn't really been articulated very clearly yet. And there are so many different pathways that our planet might go and the, that our society might go. But one nice rallying point is this net zero by 2050 target. Yeah. And I think there's actually a lot more commonality between the different scenarios than people realize. And there is a certain amount of, of certainty in regards to the fact that every person in our existing society is going to be required to build this future. And so I think we really need to help people imagine themselves actually being welders in 20 years from now, it's just that you might be welding something different. You might be welding a hydrogen pipeline instead of an oil and gas pipeline. Right. 
Yeah, many of the technologies we now use in the fossil fuel industry are transformable to the the green fuel industry, clearly. Uh, What you're doing now at Iron and Earth is really exciting, and I understand you're just now in the process of rolling out a wonderfully ambitious National Prosperous Transition Plan for a green recovery in Canada. What are some of the key parts of the plan that will help us meet the challenges of climate change? Yeah, we're very excited about the Prosperous Transition Plan and a lot of sort of the concepts that I've been describing of building on what we already have is really the foundation of this plan. We have built out this plan as a blueprint to mobilize fossil fuel industry and indigenous workers to build a net zero society by 2050. And it calls for four broad reaching national initiatives that could help to upgrade four core aspects of our economy. We look at those four aspects as our workforce, our businesses, our infrastructure, and our environment. In terms of the workforce, we're calling for a national upskilling initiative that could help rapidly upskill fossil fuel industry and indigenous workers for careers in this net zero economy. So that's things like what we're already doing, delivering these five day solar training programs for electricians. They might have spent their whole career doing electrical work at a refinery. They can take a five day program and spend the rest of their careers in solar if they want, or spend part of their time working on refineries still and part of their time working on solar projects, which is probably a more likely scenario in the shorter term. Some people- But but it allows them to transition as more solar projects or wind projects happen, there'll be more call for labor and skills and they can shift over as required. Yeah, and so we don't want that to be limited just to electricians, of course. We want these upskilling opportunities to be available to all Canadians and especially those that are being impacted by by the downturn. Can I ask what you're hearing from your contacts in various levels of government as to how they see this fitting in with their plans? Yeah, it's been pretty exciting to listen to some of the the webinars being hosted by various ministers. Seems like there's going to be a lot of detail coming out during the September 23rd throne speech. And we actually have a meeting with Minister O'Regan, the natural resource minister tomorrow. And we will be sort of laying out what we're calling for in this prosperous transition plan during that meeting. That's our first meeting directly with the minister during this period. We hope that we'll have receptive ears there. And we're, we're quite excited about that opportunity and sort of building up to and following this throne speech and really building up towards what uh, the stimulus recovery package is going to look like. We are going to be quite busy mobilizing all of our worker members to meet with their local representatives. 
to, sh to show them that there's actually quite a bit of support for a green recovery. And this is actually part of what fossil fuel industry workforce wants. It strikes me that the auto sector in Ontario and the auto unions could really take a page out of your book in terms of transitioning from the fossil fuel automobile into the electric vehicle automobile. Um, certainly it's time for those to happen right now. So that's a good template that you've created. What about opportunities for environmental regeneration? Or actually, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to riff on that a bit as well, because the second sort of pillar of the Prosperous Transition Plan is this business factor. So to help upgrade businesses like the auto plants, we're calling for a national repositioning initiative that could help retool existing manufacturing capacities and help businesses pivot their services to support net zero industries. So it's a kind of complicated one in some ways in that it's a bit of a new concept, I guess. And there's two aspects to it. The retooling piece is pretty clear when you look at it. Okay, all of these manufacturers were building vehicles that were powered by gasoline. Surely a great amount of those facilities and the equipment within them can be used to produce electrical vehicles, but they might not have the financing available to them to do the retooling required to actually be competitive in the electrical vehicle market. Right. And that's where we need government support to step in and say, hey, we want to have a long-term manufacturing industry in this sector. Electrical vehicles aren't going away anytime soon. So we might as well have a bit of a foothold where we can produce some of them locally or within our borders at least, and then support these businesses to do that. And all of the other businesses that support the auto industry should also be supported in saying, okay, well, we've been providing mechanical services to the gasoline and engine industry for quite some time. How can we support all of our mechanics to, to reposition and, and how can we build these new relationships? Right. So it, it flows all the way down the supply chain. What about opportunities for environmental regeneration, sort of shifting gears here? Resilience and adaptation are, are certainly not enough, are they? How will we repair the environmental damage that has already been caused by climate change? Yeah, and this actually does feed directly into the final two national initiatives that we're calling for. One looks at the infrastructure and we envision a national retrofit and repurpose initiative that would help take all of the brownfield and all of the infrastructure that's been used for the fossil fuel industry and repurpose that for new uses. So a really exciting project that we're working on and we were just able to announce a bunch of funding being secured for this project is called Renewal. And 
with that, it's been a few years in the making. We've been helping to develop that project sort of from day one alongside Keith Hirsch, who's the real founder of the initiative. So in Southern Alberta, we're going to be utilizing a few inactive well sites for solar energy projects. And why this is so important and why it makes so much economic sense as well is there's power lines and roads that go directly to these site locations. Right, so they're on the grid. So they're on the grid. And the oil and gas companies, in order to get the reclamation certificate, if they're not going to be repurposed, they have to tear those power lines down. They have to take those roads out. They need to bring everything back to nature. And that's very expensive. And it's a cost that a lot of companies are finding creative ways of avoiding altogether. And we have this huge crisis of increasing number of orphaned wells where companies are just going bankrupt and walking away. Right, they're walking away through bankruptcy of, of small shell corporations. Yeah. And we've created a solution that helps those companies out a bit to make sure that they don't have to just walk away. They can reduce the cost of sort of handing over the liability of these assets by saying, okay, we can use this site for a solar energy project. We won't tear down the power lines or the roads, but we'll do all of the other work necessary to ensure that we're, we're handing the site off in a viable way. And then we can come in and utilize the brownfield site and the reclamation process can then happen over a 25 year period instead of having to go and in. be amortized by the actual revenue coming out of the electricity. Exactly. Wow, that's very cool. And when's that starting? Is that about to start or is it in it right now happening? Yeah, so so that'll be breaking ground in spring of uh, next year. That is very, very cool. And is it a, an initiative in the province of Alberta or a number of provinces? So currently in Alberta, but we're definitely hoping to scale that up across Canada and fantastic hopefully even export this idea to other countries because there there's a lot of inactive wells all across the world that could benefit from a similar approach yeah and typically they have the same uh challenges and opportunities the opportunities being they're connected by roads and and power grids so that you exactly. can make use of them immediately that is very very cool and smart it makes me think about another industry that usually isn't typically thought about when we're thinking about um, fossil fuels, but your work would also lend itself, I would think, to the forest sector. Right now, they're all about harvesting wood, but there may be an opportunity for them also to be about planting large numbers of trees. For example, the Tom Crowther lab at Eteha in Zurich published a paper in Science, the journal, about the capacity of the planet for planting trees to reduce CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. A very cool article. I believe that it said that the available land that was not farmland, existing forest, or human habitation would allow us to plant somewhere in the order of 1.3 trillion trees. And this number would suck a decade's worth of CO2 out of the atmosphere. What are your thoughts 
on this and other strategies for removing carbon from the atmosphere? And how might we sort of repurpose or transform industries that exist now to sort of help that happen? Yeah. So interestingly, this is actually the fourth and final pillar of our prosperous transition plan. And we're calling for a national nature-based solutions initiative. And this is a very new area for our organization. And it's one that has our team pretty fired up, actually, because we had been focusing a little bit more on the sort of steel infrastructure scope of work because that's really like, that's my background. That's the background of a lot of the founders, but we were in conversation with a lot of stakeholders and they've helped uh, open our eyes to the huge opportunity of all of the people that work in the environmental services of the fossil fuel industry. So like when you're going to develop a project, there's a lot of workers that have to come in and assess the environment and There's obviously a huge amount of policy and regulations that every project has to go through to get approval. And then all of the groundwork that's completed during that process and the reclamation process that follows a project or should follow the decommissioning of a project and sometimes doesn't happen, unfortunately. So with new construction slowing down in that sector, there's a a big opportunity to provide that whole workforce with new opportunities, building nature-based solutions. And I think it's one of the most cost-effective ways of taking action on climate and is one that is regenerative and very much in alignment with what the indigenous communities have been trying to tell us since the beginning of colonization that we need to live in harmony with nature and have a multi-generational relationship with the environment. So I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for us to help the environment rewild and become revitalized through a wide range of solutions And Project Drawdown is something that I would like to point to as a great resource of a huge range of nature-based solutions. And a lot of them are actually at the top of the list in terms of potential impact and potential sequestration opportunities. Yeah, that's a great resource. And and we'll put it in the show notes as as a link to that book. By the way, one of our earlier podcast guests, Dale Prest, is someone that is in the forest ecology business and planting and uh, retaining existing forests and their health and their positive impact in the community. So we we should introduce you to him because I think there might be some really positive uh, synergies there. What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change? Are, Are there any other questions or better questions we should also be asking? I think a lot of people unfortunately have a a false dichotomy in their heads about either we're going to go towards this technological future or we're going to have to regress back to a sort of a back to the land 
movement kind of future. But I think the previous question is a good example of how my own thinking is changing around that quite a bit. Realizing that sort of my, my initial concept of sustainability was, was based, as I was mentioning, in my experience in Vanuatu, but also my thinking around climate action has really been driven by my experience working with my hands as a boiler maker and a welder. And so it's taken a while for those two worlds to unite. And I think that's where the most exciting vision is, is one in which we have thriving ecosystems that we can enjoy, that we have lots of time to enjoy those ecosystems, and one in which that's a reality for multiple generations. So maybe the question specifically that we could be asking more often is, how can technology and the environment complement each other in a synergistic way? And what about who is missing from the discussion? Are there people or groups of people who should be playing more important roles, uh, who are currently not participating? Who needs a seat at the table that doesn't have one? Yeah, my answer might not be super surprising here, but <laughs> I, it's workers, you know, like it's the fossil fuel industry workers really have to be heard right now. There's obviously a pretty loud contingent of a certain number of fossil fuel industry workers that are resistant to change. And in some ways, I don't blame them because... Well, their jobs are on the line. Their families are on the line. And the program has not been developed yet. You know, like... Right. If, they, can't, they can't see beyond where they are now. Exactly. It's very human. But at the same time, there is a, a large contingent of very progressive workers that do see the path forward and do see themselves building the future that we need. And so I think wherever possible, we need to ensure that the workforce is at the table when any of these conversations are, are happening. This is one of the reasons why we started Iron and Earth as well, is because we realized collectively we have to speak for ourselves. Like nobody is going to do it for us. Right. We actually right. have to create an initiative and, and, and make this happen. And not only speak for yourself, but come up with policies and strategies that really understand the kind of skills and abilities of the people in that workforce. Because I, I think people just see groups of other people as amorphous. They don't really understand what they're capable of. I, I think this really speaks to a vision of positive progress in the future. What about the notion of progress? I, I think most people who deeply care about our planet implicitly believe in it. Otherwise, why bother? What do you think about the idea of progress and the idea that we can make a positive difference in the world? Yeah, it's the concept that gets me up every day in the morning, pretty much. I, I wasn't well, I wasn't too sure about that that answer when I set out on this journey about 10 years ago. I was sort of working away in, in the steel fabricating shop, just became aware of this enormous global challenge of climate change. 
And it was very overwhelming at first. I wasn't sure if I could do anything, but I took that leap of faith. And the more that I've researched these issues throughout the process, the more inspired I have become in the fact that a lot of the, the technology is actually already available. It's really just a matter of putting the weight of policy and financing towards implementing it. Iron and Earth really defines progress through this term of a prosperous transition. Our short definition of that is the process of upgrading our economy and society to achieve multi-generational prosperity for people and the planet. And I find the concept of donut economics to be very helpful in visualizing what that looks like. I don't know if people are familiar with that listening to this, but... Uh, Many will be, but you know, what, what we'll do is we'll put a link on to okay. um, a sort of a donut economics piece. Perfect. Yeah. And so really looking at our economy as really just being society and the environment and the interrelationship between the various elements of that. And how can we live in a way that is within the constraints of our environment and respects that and can also meet the baseline needs of society? And ultimately, how can we help each of those thrive as, as much as possible? Liam, you and Iron and Earth are doing really positive things to move us forward. Can we do it? Are, are we going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems? I mean, I know that's a huge question, but do you think we're going to be able to do it? We don't have much time left. Yeah, it's... Uh, you can just stop there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Okay. No, I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, I, it's to be determined for sure. I, I think there's an interesting theory... I believe it's called the Fermi paradox, where it's like, why haven't we met aliens yet? It's because maybe they've all kind of gone to this point of society and never transitioned to a sustainable future. And so they never created the UFO style spaceships to reach other planets. Yeah. So maybe there's uh, an inherent barrier in to life evolution. I don't, but you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you believe that. For sure. So yeah. I think we will have spaceships one day and we will have unlimited energy available. I think we'll have thriving ecosystems as part of that future as well. We're a few years out, obviously, but I think there's an incredible number of reasons to be hopeful about the future. And I think we will pull together. So what gives you hope, Liam? What, what keeps you going when things look dark? I think it's our constituency for the most part, the, the workers that reach out saying, hey, I've worked my whole career in sort of northern Alberta, working on the pipelines, working on the rigs. I know that it's time for me to, to transition and I want to be part of building a sustainable planet. How can I get it involved? And how can I reposition myself to accomplish that? 
So I think that's what really gives me hope. And along with that is a lot of these new projects like Project Drawdown that actually lay it out and show mathematically that it is more than possible for us to address this issue of climate change. It's just that we need to move ambitiously on it. So what advice would you offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting these challenges and maintaining hope? Yeah, I, it, part of me wants to say, oh, do what I did. Like, If you realize that you want to change careers, just go and do it. Take the leap of faith. But that was a pretty messy pathway for me. <laughs> so I was pretty young at the time. Maybe I, I could have done a little bit more uh, planning. But I would say look at all of the different climate solutions out there. Look at Project Drawdown. Look at all of the different opportunities. Look at all the different inflection points and think, okay, what skills do I have that could potentially be relevant in these areas? Which of these excites me the most? And maybe just pick up the phone, start calling people in the industry, see what their pathway looked like. And if all else fails, quit your job and just leap forward and and make it happen. Well, that certainly is what I'm hearing from a number of our guests it's, it's very parallel. Finally, at the end of these podcast conversations, I'd like to ask my guests three rapid-fire questions to wrap up our interview. Are you up for that? Yeah, sure. Okay. The first question is, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to people? Probably the one I've referenced a few times already is Project Drawdown. Uh, it just does the hard yeah, work. Yeah, I figured you were going to say that, oh, given yeah. where you were in the interview. <laughs> does a lot of the number crunching for you. There's a whole other range of books related to building successful initiatives that have also been quite informative for me. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was pretty influential for me early on. By Stephen Covey. Yeah. Building initiatives is really about working with people. I, I found the book Radical Candor to be very, very helpful for me. Yeah, there's there's many others. I'd be happy to send over a list if you want. Okay, we'll, we'll put those in the, in the show notes. If you send us a list, that's great. Second question, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world, or regions for that matter around the world, that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions or helping cities adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? I'm going to cheat a little bit and say the Prosperous Transition Plan. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So we'll just plug that in. That's great, actually. We'll put a link right there. (laughs) That's not a cheat. You worked really hard on that. That's a a very thorough answer. Um, Third question. Um, If you could publish a full-page spread in the Sunday New York Times or the folio section of the Globe and Mail, of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? I, it would, I think it would say how, how fossil fuel industry workers are changing the world for the better <laughs> uh, or 
how fossil fuel industry workers are tackling climate change. And maybe the, the visual would be, it would look like they're working on a, an oil rig, but it would actually be a renewable energy project. Just really drive that visual home for people. That would be cool. I actually thought you were going to say the prosperous transition plan, because that would probably just perfectly fit in the folio section. But nonetheless, I think the other is very good, too. As a final closing question, is there anything that you would like to ask of our listeners? Yeah, I, I, I would like to ask you, like, how could your company or your skill set contribute to creating a prosperous future. I think maybe a lot of people assume that their company is irrelevant in this transition, or maybe think that since they work for an oil and gas company, their company couldn't help lead this transition. But ask yourself, is it possible that maybe my company could provide some value to this movement? That's very helpful. And just before we close, could you please provide listeners with your social media contacts so that they could connect with you? We'll post it in the show notes. For sure. Our uh, Twitter handle is Iron and Earth, just written out, so you'll, you'll find us there. And Iron and Earth on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. That's great. Thanks very much for your time today, Liam. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for the platform. It was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed this. And, and I think the uh, prosperous transition plan has a lot of legs. I think it's going to be really, really important in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, cheers. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash TFCI podcast. This podcast is ad free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.